And church, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. I have heard from time to time that before a battle, doesn't happen very often, you can understand why, but before a battle, at times, the, the enemy army will, will come across the battle plans of, of one army. And needless to say, that changes the battle. If you know the battle plans of the enemy before the enemy starts executing them, you can respond quite well. Today, we get battle plans from the Lord. These are God's battle plans for his people in Revelation chapter 11. Well, the Apostle John took the, the scroll from the hand of the angel. This was the same scroll that originated in the right hand of the Father who sat upon the throne. This was the same scroll that Christ came and took from his Father because he was worthy to do so. Because he was the Lamb that was slain. And he took that scroll and he opened the seals on that scroll. Then he gave it into the hand of an angel, mighty and powerful who brought that scroll down to earth and who handed it to John. And if you were with us last week, you recall that chapter 10 ended with John taking that scroll and actually eating the scroll. That is to say, consuming the message of that scroll. Digesting it. Taking it into himself. So that when he would be ready to speak, he wouldn't be speaking his words. He would be speaking God's words from that scroll. See, that scroll... Is, is God's battle plan. This is God's answer to the prayer of the church that, we, that we've been praying since Christ was first here. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How's that going to happen? How's this kingdom going to come? How's this will going to be done? The answer's in the scroll that was in his hand that Christ took that is now in John's mouth. And chapter 10 ends with the angel telling John, you must prophesy. And in chapter 11, which is where we are, he does. He begins to reveal. This is, this is John's revelation of what was in the scroll. It's, it's the revelation in the book of Revelation. Right? So we're, we've been in the book for a while, but, but finally we get to the the heart of the matter. What was in this scroll? What's God's plan for His kingdom to come about on this earth? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer the question right up front because as usual, Revelation can be confusing on first read, right? This is not the literature we're reading most of the week, right? It's very symbolic. Revelation chapter 11 is about the church. It's about God's people on earth. In other words, God's answer to the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's going to bring that about through and in his people. Through his church. And this chapter is going to use two different pictures to describe the church. The first is of a temple. And that, that could make sense to us, right? Because we know that the church is the temple of the, the Holy Spirit. And the second is of witnesses. And that also makes sense. We know that the, the church is here to be Christ's witnesses upon the earth. So we're going to look at these two different pictures as we 
see God's plan for his people. So the first picture is only the first two verses of the chapter. So follow along with me. We read God's word, Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. There's our first picture in the chapter. So John is, as his first prophetic thing, he doesn't speak. We kind of expect prophets to speak. But as many prophets did actually in the Old Testament, John is instead told to enact something. His prophecy is going to be by doing something. Perhaps you're familiar with Ezekiel and others who, who were told by God, lay on your side for a long, long time to symbolize this and then do this and then do this. And they were, they were told to enact something for God's people. Well, that's what John is doing here. It's a prophetic enactment. What's he enacting? He's measuring the temple. Now, I've already told you that the temple is, is the church, but let's just, let's just kind of think that through for a minute so we can grasp hold of it. So, so John's not being told to measure you know, a physical temple upon the earth, right? The, the temple in Jerusalem is not even there anymore. God, more importantly, has moved on from buildings as his temple. When Christ came to earth, he claimed the role of temple himself, right? Do you remember when he, when he had told his disciples that the temple would be destroyed, but in three days he would build it back up? That spoke of his own resurrection, right? He saw himself, rightly so. He was the place you would go to meet God. He was the temple. And then, then of course, Christ ascended. And when he ascended, he left the, the role of being the temple on earth to his people. So that now in the book of Ephesians, we're told that we, the church, are a holy temple in the Lord. So when John comes to, to measure the temple, what he's doing is measuring the people of God, measuring the church. But the question then comes up, what does this measuring thing mean? What does it mean that he's measuring this? Well, let's look again. The verses are short, so I can read it again. He's told to measure one thing and not measure something else. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Notice, where John measures is kept safe. Where he does not measure is given over to the nations, and indeed is trampled by them. So his prophetic um, activity of measuring is symbolic of of God putting protection on his people, of him protecting his church. Measure it. Measure the whole thing. Be careful. Make sure you get it right. This is what gets measured and therefore gets protected. So the same God who he knows his people and he, he counts every tear. He numbers us. 
He protects his people. His measurement is precise. No one's going to be left out that should be included. He's not overlooking this one or that. And this picture, if you've been here for a few weeks, matches right up with what we saw a few weeks ago where God puts his seal on his people. Do you remember that? Where he put his seal that was his name on their foreheads as a, before there's judgment, seal my people, keep them safe. Well, here it is. Measure my temple that they won't be trampled. But while they won't be, something will be. Because John is not allowed to measure this other part, this, this um, outer court of the temple. Outwardly, then, the church is vulnerable. Outwardly, the church indeed will be trampled by the world. There is there is the implicit acknowledgement of persecution and danger and distress and vulnerability of the church. So this is, a, this is an interesting picture of the church all at once. All at once, there's an internal invincibility measured by God, protected by God, spiritually safe, yet living in a world where she looks so vulnerable. And is so vulnerable. And the church will be given over. And the nations even trampling over her. So, this is a picture of, of God keeping us spiritually safe in a hostile world. Despite all the hostility. Right? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Come power of hell. And come scheme of man though they may, none can snatch us from his hand. So, what have we learned so far about God's battle plan? It doesn't look like a battle plan quite yet. We're going to see it unfold through the chapter. But, but in short, we can say already that the church is going to look a bit like the Savior did. It's going to walk in the footsteps of the Savior. Where we, he came, he came suffering. He came giving of himself. He came and was trampled by the nations. Now, I, I want to I draw a line here. As I make a comparison, I also want to draw a line. What Christ endured for us was unique and unrepeatable. We don't add to that. He doesn't need our help. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Lamb that was slain, Right? But when God is about bringing his kingdom to the earth, we, we shouldn't be surprised. Perhaps we are. We shouldn't be surprised. Say, oh, the church is going to follow in the footsteps of the Savior. We're supposed to look like him. The church isn't going to bring the kingdom of God by being a church that comes and looks like a dictator. We're going to be a church that comes and suffers like the Savior. That's how the kingdom of God moves forward. A church that's vulnerable externally, but protected by God internally. So that's the scroll, the blueprint that the Lord has. That's the first picture. Second picture we'll look at beginning in verse 3, and I'm going to read down to verse 14 today. There's a lot in here. Fasten your seatbelts. 
And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples, and tribes, and languages, and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. John pictures the church as a witnessing church. There are two witnesses that we see. Now, witnesses is not inherently confusing to us. We understand we are the inheritors of the Great Commission. Christ said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth. We know that the church is called to be his witnesses, but why two? Why two witnesses here? How can two refer to the whole church? Well, as always in the book, the, the, the numbers that we read, we should, we should at least start by thinking that they're symbolic. Because that's how John uses numbers. So that's our starting point in the book of Revelation, that this is symbolic. So, so what is John thinking about in, in picturing two witnesses here? He's thinking about the Old Testament, and particularly the Old Testament law regarding witnesses so in a court in the old testament there can be no charge admitted except by two or more witnesses so two witnesses is is the necessary quorum required for evidence to be admitted in court so when we when we read here two witnesses we should not be thinking that there are somehow only two christians or only two christians are called to this role of bearing witness no rather what we should see is that that the witness of the church is sufficient it is enough it is a verifiable witness as in a courtroom if two people step forward that would serve to prove the case and the church is enough to prove the case to the world this means that the church's witness is going to work it's going to it's going to do what it's supposed to do. What's it supposed to do? 
two things. It's supposed to draw God's elect to himself. And the church, her witness, is enough to do that. She won't fail in her mission. All of God's people will be brought to him on that last day because the witness of the church is enough for that. And the witness of the church is enough as a testimony against those who fail to turn. Because they failed to turn not just at one witness, but at two. And they are culpable and liable for failing to respond to these two witnesses. So John pictures us as witnesses, but he also pictures the church as the inheritors of kind of the Old Testament prophetic ministry. Right? So as you read through this, there's a lot of Old Testament stuff kind of happening right here. The church is pictured as the prophets of the New Testament. The Old Testament prophets bearing witness today to the world. We see that first in what the church is wearing in verse 3, that it is clothed in sackcloth. The church is clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is the, the garment of mourning. It's the garment of sorrow. It's the garment of repentance. Why is she wearing this? Because she brings to the world a message of sorrow and repentance. That's what we're called to bring. That's, that's what the church is here to, to bear witness about. Yes to wonderful things. like The risen Christ and the God who loves you. But also to fearful reality. That you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And if you don't repent, you will spend eternity away from God in hell. That is a mournful message. It calls the world to repent. That's the message we bear. That's the message we're called to bear. So the sackcloth picture here reminds us of the, the, the kind of message we're carrying. And it also reminds us of how we should carry it. We should preach the gospel through tears. Church is not an angry church. She's a mourning church. She's mourning for neighbors and friends and loved ones and community that don't know Jesus and desperately need him. So we carry this message to the world in a posture of mourning ourselves. Would you turn? Would you turn? Friend, this morning, if you don't know Jesus, would you turn? Follow after him. And repent of your sins. Don't, don't harden your heart. Even now. Don't harden your heart. The Lord is good. Turn to him in repentance. You will know his goodness. So we're pictured as these Old Testament prophets. Clothed in sackcloth. And then, man, there's a lot of Old Testament imagery. Remember Elijah when he was sent. And he commanded the sky not to rain. And it didn't rain until Elijah said so. And that was a judgment on the land of Israel who was worshiping the Baals. And Elijah said, repent and turn back to the Lord. And so he was calling people to that repentance. And then remember Moses turning the Nile River into blood. 
and calling the people of Egypt to repent and let God's people go. Sending down plagues upon the land of Egypt. Even so now, the church stands and proclaims as Old Testament prophets used to do, the living God. Turn and repent. Verses 5 and 6 again. If anyone would harm them, that is the witnesses, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. These are pictures. These are Old Testament prophetic power pictures. And these are pictures of the church being invincible. None can, who can harm somebody when fire comes out of their mouth? This is a picture of invincibility. As God's people go to proclaim His Word in weakness, they're unstoppable as they do it. This is, it's almost hard for us to get our minds fully around both the strength that's being pictured and the weak weakness that's being pictured here at the very same time. Because there are people that want to harm them. But while they yet speak, they are invincible. And God is keeping His people. Who can harm the Christian? Who can stop the witness of the church? Many have tried. Many more will try. And many more will fail. None can stop the witness of the church. So long as they have work to do by the King, the King will keep them. But verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Suddenly, there is a beast. We are introduced without introduction to the beast. We're going to learn more about him when we get to chapter 13. But now he arrives suddenly and we learn that the church's opponent is a monster. Picture a beast, if you will. Because we're meant to. That's what these pictures are for. Our sanctified imagination can, can bring... Picture a, a physical beast, violent and hungry. But understand, it's not a physical beast that we're talking about here, but a vision of spiritual evil. A spiritual evil, powerful and violent and vicious and destructive and dangerous. A beast. This is the demonic will set against the church. An enemy who goes about roaring like a lion, seeking someone to devour. And he will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. The invincible church. Invincible no more. Powerful no more. Unstoppable no more. Now stopped. Now slain. Now silence. But notice the beginning of that verse. When does this happen? When they have finished their testimony. So, so before they finish their testimony. Before they're done doing the work of the king. The king will keep them. Come any trial or trouble or tribulation or difficulty.
through all these things, the king will keep them and his message will go forward through his people. And when they're done, he will call them home. He will call them home and the world will rejoice over them. This is a, a grotesque picture that we get to here. Their bodies are left lying in the street, it says, of, of Sodom or Egypt. It's just pictures of hostility to God, the city that's hostile to God. It says where their Savior was crucified. Well, we all know Jesus was crucified outside Jerusalem. But, but again, he's talking symbolically of this world aligned against God, shaking its fist against God, that rejoiced over the crucifixion of Christ will rejoice over the death of his saints as well. And rejoice they will. Verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Let's raise a toast to the dead Christian and the message we don't have to listen to anymore. Let's, let's have a party because we so hated the words that they told us. That message that they came wearing sackcloth and telling us we hated it. It was a torment to us. Christians bearing the words like from 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. You could hear this said with pleading and mourning. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's our message. Silenced. And the world rejoices. Because those who love the darkness hate the light and rejoice when it's turned off that they can revel in the darkness. This is a strange victory strategy. War strategy. Game plan that God has. That this is not what we were hoping for or expecting when the scroll got opened. How are you going to do it, Lord? How's your kingdom going to come? How's your will going to be done on earth as it is in heaven? It's going to look at times and often like Christians' lives failed. It's going to look different places at times like the world won, like the beast was victorious, like the church has been defeated, like she lost in the end. That will be the vantage point from earth because of a misunderstanding about the end. The end, as the world thinks of it, turns out to not be the end. There is more to the story than simply the martyrdom of God's people. It continues in verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath 
of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. I have to make a lot of choices as I preach these passages. How many questions to try to answer along the way as we try to go where the Lord is taking the passage, right? I'm going to do a, a, a small aside and just address the three and a half days. Every time I read that, I think three and a half days, literally. And I know better, but I think it anyway. So we need to understand that there's, there's a different period of time that's being referenced here. Three and a half years is used throughout the book of Revelation, and even back in Daniel, to refer to the time in, the, in world history where the church suffers upon the earth. Okay? Three and a half years. It gets talked about in different ways in the book of Revelation. Three and a half years could be said three and a half years. It could be said 42 months, which is three and a half years. It could be said 1,260 days, which is a 30-day month times 42 months. It's all the same time period. It's all this, and, and that was all referenced in this chapter so far. We had 42 months. We had 1,260 days. This is just the way that the book talks about this time of suffering for God's people while we are his witnesses upon the earth, while we are his temple upon the earth. All right, so that's three and a half years. The, the apparent defeat of the church is three and a half days, which is to say much shorter than that. Okay? So it's not a literal three and a half days. It's, it's real. It's half of seven, so it's not full. It's not complete. And it's way smaller than this period of time that we're talking about where the church is upon the earth. All right, if you followed that, awesome. <laughs> so after a short time, the breath of life from God enters back into his people. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the resurrection. All of a sudden, history's over and the resurrection has begun. And God's people, slain throughout time, stand back up. Glory to God. This is a great day. Turned out that the end wasn't the end after all. There is a better ending in plan. God's scroll is not a scroll with a grand plan for the defeat of His people. This is a grand plan for the victory of His people, but it's going to be a victory like Christ had. It didn't look like He won on Friday. But it did on Sunday. Right? So, church, let's be aware God's plan for time looks a lot like what we've seen in His plan through Christ. Ours is going to be victory often through apparent defeat. And so, He calls His people. He breathes the breath of life back into them. And a loud voice from heaven says, Come up here. Makes me think, maybe you too, of another passage more familiar to us about this same topic from 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. 
this a good ending to the story? This is what we are looking forward to. And what we're familiar with, perhaps, in Thessalonians, of the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. Now we get to hear what he says. Come up here. I look forward to those words. Yes, sir. Right away, sir. Yes. Come up here. And then we learn something else, that it's not just the church being raised. It is the enemies of God watching in terror. Their enemies watched them and were terrified. So, how then will God's kingdom come upon the earth? It is through His suffering, yet spiritually safe church. How will His will be done on earth as it is in heaven? It is through His proclaiming, but persecuted church. So, I want to begin to let us wrap up here by giving two kind of thoughts, application thoughts, in light of what we see. And the first, dear Christian, take up your cross. Take up your cross. We are not promised ease or wealth or comfort or health. Let's hear again the words of Jesus that he spoke so long ago, but maybe we didn't really hear it, didn't maybe want to hear it. Take up your cross and follow me. This is the call to being a Christian. The call to being a Christian is the call to follow Christ while carrying a cross. From the first disciple called 2,000 years ago, until the very last disciple turns, maybe just before the return of Christ, the call is the same for every believer through all time, in every culture, in every place. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, now you, the, the call here is not go strengthen yourself. Go strengthen yourself to carry your cross. No, indeed. I need Thee every hour, O gracious Lord. I need Thee. Oh, I need Thee every hour. I need Thee. This is a call to dependence upon the Lord. And praise God for this call, take up your cross and follow me, because it doesn't say this. Take off your cross and get going over there. Take off your cross and go do it on your own. He says, take up your cross and follow me. I'm going with you. Every step. Every step. I will strengthen you. I will hold you up. It's your cross, but you're with me. And the Lord doesn't call you anywhere He hasn't already gone. He knows all about carrying crosses. But He calls us to take up our cross and follow Him. So, this isn't a call to like strengthen ourselves in ourselves, but it is a call to understand the direction that the Lord leads His people. Following Jesus will at times mean the death of dreams, the death of comfort, the death of desires, the death of relationships, the death of popularity, 
the death of other things you wanted to do, even the death of bodies in following after Him. Here, dear church, are the marching orders from the King. From the right hand of the one upon the throne. So, ours is to be His witnesses. Ours is to follow after Him. We're not here for us. We're not here for me or for you. We're here for Him. We're here for His mission. We're here to do what He's called us to do for as long as He's called us to do it in the power that He gives us to do it. That's why the church is here right now. That's why you're here right now. Find your place in Revelation chapter 11. As foreign as it seems when we first read it. This is the marching orders of the church. Are you part of the church? Take up your cross and follow Him. Let us be sackcloth wearing, prophetically speaking, shame gladly bearing witnesses of Jesus Christ in this world. So, first of two, Christian, take up your cross. And second, Christian, take up your hope as well. Take up your hope, that is, take up your hope and follow Jesus afresh. It's not just take up your cross. It is take up your cross and follow me. And it is good to follow Jesus. He knows where he's going. He knows the path of victory. It doesn't end in defeat. It goes through apparent defeat. That's not the end. Take hope when you read this. Apparent defeat is not the end. Christ is leading his church to victory. This is God's big plan for the planet. This is how His kingdom's going to come. This is how His will's going to be done. This is good stuff. This is winning God's way. The suffering witness of the church is not going to fail. The suffering witness of the church is not going to flop. This isn't God's plan for defeat. This is God's plan for victory. And so, let's be about it. Through apparent defeat. Aware of our own weakness. Crying out each day, I need Thee, oh I need Thee. Every hour I need Thee, Lord. So we go forward in weakness. Perhaps you feel that. I do. You go to share the Gospel with somebody. Go to speak of Christ. You feel a little weakness there. It could be a cross-carrying exercise just to open our mouths to speak of Jesus. Friend, take hope. The one on the throne plans great things through this. Great things indeed. This is His plan. So, so let's get our eyes off us. Alright? And our weakness and oh, this is hard. Yes, yes, Lord, we need You. Lord, meet us. Lord, do what only You can do through Your weak and suffering church. God's power comes through His weak church. That's what, that's what this is about. Friends, as we walk, good news, the temple is measured. The saints are sealed. The Lord will keep each of us through whatever we, walk, we have to walk through. He will keep us and keep us and keep us. So the world can do what it wants. The beast can do what it wants. All the vile 
enemies of the church that we're going to come across in the book of Revelation can do what they want and none of them will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord because He keeps His people. So, we do not hope for ease, but we do hope for victory. And our hope is in Him. So let's keep our hope in Him together. Worship team, come on up. Let's stand together. Lord, I trust that most, maybe all of us here, are freshly aware of our need for you. We need you, Lord. Would you strengthen us to be your witnesses here to proclaim with sackcloth the true message of repentance, to proclaim it as those who are honestly mourning for those around us. Give us that heart, Lord. Give us boldness to proclaim, Lord. Lord, give us hope that as we take up our cross and follow you, that you are with us and will strengthen us and will keep us until we see you face to face. In your name we pray. Amen.